This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Rachel, for that amazing reminder, good truth. If you would please open your Bibles to the book of Acts, and we'll be looking at uh, just a verse or two in chapter three, and then <clears throat> moving on to moving on to chapter four. If you're a history buff or even a movie watcher, the name Spartacus will probably ring a bell. Spartacus was born a hundred years or so before Christ, and to begin with, he was an ally of the Romans. He served in the Roman army, but then he became disenchanted. Something happened, and he deserted the army, became a gladiator, and eventually led a group of slave insurgents against the Roman government. And to begin with, Spartacus, and and it was just pretty much a small group of followers, they weren't much of a threat. They were just kind of a pesky nuisance. They didn't have the manpower to threaten the Roman army. But, But over time, more and more slaves began to join up with Spartacus until, I was just researching it this week, their numbers reached around 70,000 which at that point they began to put fear into Rome because Rome had hundreds of thousands of other slaves. And some reports were saying even on up to a million and even over a million of other slaves. And the government realized that if all of the slaves decided to join Spartacus, the empire could be in trouble. Well, Spartacus and his slave army fought the government forces for quite a while. And And they were actually uh, victorious in several battles. I was reading, I think, seven different battles. They were victorious. But then they were finally trapped between two segments of the Roman army, and and they were defeated. Spartacus was killed in in 71 B.C., before Christ. And, And the movie, if you watch the movie, the movie says that he died by crucifixion. But historical accounts dispute that and say that he probably wasn't crucified, but the government did kill him with, uh, by other means. But what happened after his death was that Rome, and this is really interesting, Rome captured the 6,000 remaining slaves that had been fighting with Spartacus, uh, that, that hadn't been killed. Most of them were killed in battle. But they took these 6,000 uh, slaves and crucified all of them along the most traveled road back into Rome, which was a road called the Appian Way. As a church a few years ago, not this last time, but two times ago when we went to Israel, after leaving Israel, we went to Rome and kind of followed the, the uh, footsteps of the Apostle Paul, and uh, we were actually on that road, and, and I can picture in my mind still the sign that says, the Appian Way, that there's so much history there along that, uh, we would call it kind of a, a, an interstate, a thoroughfare. But, but try to imagine this grisly scene, the, the busiest road Going into Rome, you've got 6,000 rotting bodies on crosses. The, the stench had to be unbearable. But Rome wanted this scene to be etched, recorded in people's minds to, to do this, to spread fear and keep in check any other potential slave uprising. And what I find very interesting is that it's reported that, that the Romans paid historians to write this account into the history books because they wanted to send a warning to the rest of the world that you better not mess with Rome. 
which is probably the only reason that we know anything about Spartacus. Now, the real mystery is how in the world do we know anything about Jesus? I mean, the story of, of Spartacus making it into the history books makes sense. It was like a paid advertisement by the Roman government as a warning to the entire world. Don't mess with us. This is what will happen. We, we kind of understand that, how that made it into the history books. But, but how is it that a very humble Jewish carpenter who lived a short life of 33 years in Judea, which somebody called Judea the armpit of the Roman Empire. Because nobody in the Roman Empire, in, in the Roman army, wanted to even patrol around this barren area of Judea. They called it, I mean, they considered it God-forsaken. And so neither Roman historians nor Jewish historians wrote about this man Jesus. Yet we still have very accurate and detailed accounts of his life. In fact, this is amazing. We know way more about Jesus today than we do about Spartacus. Or for that fact, even any of the powerful Roman emperors. How did that happen? Here's how. Jesus' followers so strongly believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, and not only had he died, but he resurrected from the dead, and about 120 eyewitnesses of his resurrection went out into the streets of Jerusalem, and on their own accord, nobody paid them, nobody forced them, on their own accord, boldly Proclaim Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and the message caught fire. It caught fire in Jerusalem. It spread into the surrounding areas and eventually all around the world. And here's what I want you to catch. Because this summarizes a good part of what we want to say today. The reason that the good news of Jesus came to us here in this little I was going to say armpit of Missouri. That, that may be a little offensive here. But, but the only reason that it got to us here in this little community in Missouri was because the church at the very beginning was a bold, outward-focused movement. But here's what happened over time. The focus of the church began to turn inward. In fact, let me tell you what I've learned. The gravitational pull of every local church, including ours, is back towards us, the members, the insiders. And, and invariably, the focus becomes on, what can the church do for me? You know, for pastors, those of us that are pastors, many times this is the way it plays out. We think, okay, what kind of package can the church give me if I take the church? Or for church members like you, it plays out with this mindset, what can the church do for my family if I join? I mean, what does the church have to offer my kids and my teenagers, and how comfortable can the church make our Sunday morning experience how good is the coffee? 
and how good are the donuts? Now, I'll admit, as part of this church, I, I want the church to meet my needs. I especially want a church that will meet the needs of my kids and my grandkids. And, and of course, I want good coffee and donuts. But when more people are concerned about comfort, and when people are more upset over a church building being too hot or too cold, or they're more grieved over the style of music that then they are concerned over lost people that are going to hell. If those conveniences, if those perks ever become the predominant concerns, then as a church we have probably become inward focused. And I'm confident that a lot of us could tell some stories of situations where the church became insider focused. I heard a true story of a pastor and his dad who once were traveling out of state, and so when Sunday rolled around, they decided to go to a local church in town where they were, and as they walked in, the usher was friendly enough and, and ushered them to the very back row, and of course, that lets you know it wasn't our church because the back rows would have been full. You got to get here early to get a back row. But the service began, and it was a good service. You know, they had their time of music, the pastor spoke, after the sermon, they, they served communion, so far so good. Well, the communion servers served the first rows, and they kept working their way back. But when they got to the back rows, they abruptly turned around and went back to the front and put the trays down. The pastor led those who had received the bread and juice and the taking of communion elements, the, in, in, in taking the communion elements, the pastor did the closing prayer, dismissed everyone, and evidently somebody must have noticed the baffled look on the faces of that pastor and, and, and father. And so they came up to them after the service and said, I, I'm sorry, we've got to explain to you uh, our practice at this church is that is to always put guests on the back rows on the days that we're serving communion. So they don't accidentally take communion with us because they're not members of the church. Now, now maybe I'm confused here, but my understanding is that the practice of communion is for all who have placed their trust in Jesus. It's not just a perk for members of a particular local church. And I'm sure that some of you have probably heard other horror stories, perhaps when you were growing up, and this may really get close to some of you, Maybe some of you, your parents got divorced, and your church didn't know what to do with a divorcee. And maybe they didn't officially kick them out of the church, but they shunned them out of the church. They made them feel like second-class Christians. Or maybe you went to a church that was full of whispers, you know, people who whispered about those who didn't look right or smell right or act right. And I'm not condoning actions where there is sin, but what I'm trying to say is that the church down through the years has many times gotten away from being the ecclesia. And, and the word ecclesia is the Greek word that we've translated church. But ecclesia is way more than just church as we view it today. It's way more than a church building or a local congregation. Ecclesia is better translated as a gathering a movement centered around Jesus Christ where the focus is reaching for Jesus, the lost, the last, and the least. That's the ecclesia. That's the church. You know, the rallying point of the early church wasn't being a member so you could take communion or it wasn't what kind of music you sang or 
or that you had to have good coffee and donuts. The rallying point was that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He died for our sins, but then rose victoriously from the dead. That was the rallying point of the ecclesia, the church. Now, for the rest of our time today, I want to focus on one of the telltale ways to determine if a church is outsider-oriented or insider-oriented. And, and what we're going to study today may surprise you a little bit. In fact, if you would have asked me how we can know if a church is insider, outsider focused, I would have not given this answer. But by looking at the first century church, we, we see that one of the telltale signs, whether church is insider or outsider focused, is by the way it prays. That's right. How a church prays. How you pray, how I pray, how the board members pray, how the members pray helps us to know if we are insider-focused or outsider-focused. Now, again, our lesson will be taken from Acts 3 and 4, and we will look at what I believe is the first recorded prayer by the church after the day of Pentecost. Of course, they spent, what was it, 10 days in prayer leading up to Pentecost, um, and I'm sure there were many, many other prayers, but, but I did a quick study, and this appears to be the first prayer that was recorded in God's Word after the church was formed. Now, before we look at that prayer, I want you to think about the prayers that you pray. And I know what you pray, because we all pretty much pray the same thing, and there, there are a few exceptions, I'm sure, but the average prayer uses the word bless a lot. In fact, if we would take the word bless out of our prayers, man, it would mess us up so much. Um, we, we pray, bless me, bless my kids, bless my grandkids, bless America. God put a hedge of protection around us and help so-and-so because they're sick, and, and we say amen, and we go our, our blessed way. In fact, just guessing, if God answered the prayers that we pray, listen, the only people that would benefit would probably be our family and maybe somebody that was sick. But probably nobody would come to Christ because of our prayers. Because our prayers are mainly for safety, healing, and blessing. And, and don't stop what you're praying. But what I'm saying is this, that most of us only pray self-centered prayers, and when that happens, it causes us to become self-centered Christians. And the result is that the ecclesia, remember what that means, the gathering, the movement, becomes nothing more than a church building, and we become nothing more than church people that do nothing more than church things. And because we're so insider-focused and so self-centered, we we begin to get on each other's nerves. We get unhappy because the church is not doing what I think it should do, and it isn't taking the political stand that I think it should take, and it's not reacting to COVID like I think it should, and it's not singing the type of music that I think it should, and the pastor's not preaching the style of sermons I think he should. And, and what happens is that because we've made our Christianity about us, our comfort, and getting our needs met, we become unhappy. Now, the, the background for this prayer that we're going to study in just a few minutes is, um, is in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people have just joined the church. 
or, or become part of the ecclesia. That was in one day. It, it's been a good day for the church. Uh, remember, the church was a movement. It wasn't a local congregation or a building. But anyway, a few days after these 3,000 people have joined the ecclesia, Peter and John head to the temple, which was the epicenter of, of, Jerusa, uh, of Judaism. Uh, of Judaism. And, and Peter and John, even though they're now followers of Jesus, they still have the habit of going to the temple to pray, which, by the way, isn't a bad habit to even have today. Anytime you want to come to the church to pray this building, we've got a 24-hour access at the prayer chapel. You come. This is a good place to seek God. But, but as they're going up to the temple, they see a man who had been lame from birth. Now, l- let me just stop and make sure you understand what the word lame means. The word lame has evolved to mean other things. You know, when I tell a joke, my family typically says that was lame. But in case you didn't know, the word lame really means unable to walk, okay? I just want to clarify that before we go any further. It has nothing to do with the quality of my jokes, okay? But, but this guy is lame, and, and he can't walk, and he's begging near the temple, and, and Peter and John go up to him, and, and this man is probably holding out his tin can saying, alms for the poor, alms for the poor. That's how he survives. There, there were no government programs to help disabled people. Well, Peter and John hear him saying alms for the poor, but instead of reaching in their pockets to throw a coin into this tin can, they say, sir, we don't have any money to give you, but we've got something better. Um, This is our gift for you today. Get up and walk. Peter reaches out his hand, helps this lame man up, and he's miraculously healed. Now, would you uh, allow me to read between the lines as to what might have happened? Scripture doesn't give the man's name, so we'll just call him Jack. Jack, after testing out his legs to make sure they will support him, maybe hurries up and, and catches up to Peter and John, who probably kept on walking towards the temple. They get to the temple and go inside, and, and this healed man follows them right into the temple, and, and Jack creates a scene. In Acts chapter 3, verse 8, it says, then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. Now, if you came in here jumping and praising God, I assume it wasn't, praise God. I assume there was a little bit of excitement there. If you would come in jumping and praising God, you'd create a scene as well. And, and Jack, and, and remember this is just a pseudoname, but, but Jack especially got quite a crowd around him when, when people in the temple all of a sudden recognized who it was. I mean, for years they've seen this man begging outside of the temple doors, and, and they're probably like, oh my word, you've got to be kidding me. I, I, I've known Jack all of my life. Jack has been lame as long as I can remember. I can't believe this. He's walking. Well, as everybody gathers around to look at Jack, Peter just can't help himself. Bless his heart. You know, he's a typical preacher, and he sees this crowd, and he decides to preach a sermon in the temple, even though he wasn't the pastor. And in the middle of the sermon, would you believe he says the R word? 
he can't stay away from the word resurrection. Well, predictably, the leaders of the temple, they come unglued and they said, you just can't waltz in here and preach that stuff. And, and besides that, they felt a little picked on, uh, like you probably understand here, because Peter kept saying, you crucified him. You crucified him. Well, the leaders were offended and they called for security and they said, we've got some out of control preachers. They need to be arrested. And and they arrested Peter and John, threw them in jail for the night. But what's interesting to me, and, and this was a, a phrase that just stuck out to me, and I, I never had noticed it. But the Bible says that by the time they threw them in jail, God's word had already taken root. And the number of men that decided to follow Jesus grew to about 5,000. So that little outburst where he couldn't help himself. Well, after spending the night in jail the next morning they escorted Peter and John from the jail to stand before the leaders of the temple. And, and the leaders said, okay, what's this you keep talking about? And Peter says, I'm glad you asked. He launches into another sermon about Jesus being the Son of God. And again, he mentions the R word and told them how Jesus had resurrected from the dead. And, and he concluded his sermon and, and said something that really irritated his audience. And by the way, it still irritates people today. He said this in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name in all of heaven for people to call on to save them. You know what Peter was saying? Peter was saying not all roads lead to heaven. Not all religions will give you eternal life. It's, it's not just a matter of, of following what you think. And I've heard people say, well, you know what? When it comes to religion, this is what I think. So what? Your opinion doesn't matter. My opinion doesn't matter. There's only one way to heaven, and that is through Jesus Christ. And that still stirs people up today. And the leaders of the temple were stirred up. And they probably would have had them thrown into jail again, but the problem was that Jack, remember the recipient of the miracle, was standing there, and, and they didn't feel that they could punish Peter and John, the miracle workers, without some pushback from the people. Let's read about it in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. The members of the council were amazed when they saw, and focus on this word, the boldness of Peter and John. For they could see that they were ordinary men who had no special training. And I, I pray that this would be said about us. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. <laughs> oh, God, would that happen to us to where people would see us and they'd say, you've been with Jesus, haven't you? You spent time with Jesus. But since the man who had been healed was standing there, right among them, the council had nothing to say. So here's what they kind of did. Kind of like when the highway patrolman uh, stops you for speeding, but just gives you a warning. <clears throat> That's what they did here. They said, we're going to let you go with a warning. You better keep your mouth shut. Don't talk about Jesus. <clears throat> Don't talk about the resurrection. And quit blaming us for crucifying him. Now get out of here. Well, notice what Peter didn't say. He didn't say what you tell the highway patrolman when you, he let you off with the warning. <laughs> he, he didn't say, well, thank you so much. You know, I promise I will drive the speed limit from now on. In fact, officer, I'll just set the cruise at 500 to be safe. And officer, I've learned my lesson. I'll never speed again in my life, at least until I get out of sight of you. Peter didn't promise anything, because in verse 19, Peter and John replied, judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, 
for we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. You know, they were basically saying, I, I, I'm sorry, I know you got to do what you got to do, but we're not going to stop. We just can't do it. We can't do it. Well, Peter and John left the temple area, and they found their fellow believers. And as they walked up, can you imagine? Oh, everyone had to breathe a sigh of relief because they didn't know if they would ever see Peter and John again. Remember, Jesus had been crucified probably a couple of months earlier, and so they were thinking, here we go again. Now, how would you have responded at this moment? They come walking up, and it's like, that was close. Um, let me tell you how I think we would have responded as a church. I, I, I think we would have said, we almost lost our number one and number two guy, because that's what Peter and John were. And so to keep that from happening, I think we as a church would have said, we need to put protective measures in place. And, and first of all, Peter and John, you're not allowed to travel together anymore. When Peter goes, John, you stay. When John goes, Peter, you stay. We don't want to lose both of you. Number two, I think we'd have said, um, Guys, why don't you tone down the message you're preaching? Peter, no more R word. Don't talk about the resurrection. That just brings out too many emotions right now. And, and maybe you could do a sermon on that phrase that Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. And John, you know, you're called John the Beloved. Early in your ministry, you were actually called son of thunder. So maybe you could talk about how you made the transition from thunder to beloved. You know, from a personality, I don't know, I'm just kind of assuming here, son of thunder, what, what would you think? But maybe a personality of being loud and annoying to being adored by everyone? And, and, and one more thing, please, please, back off of that statement, salvation is only through Jesus Christ. Now, now of course we believe that, we'll always believe that, but it's not politically correct these days. So, so don't bring any unnecessary trouble to us. Just blend in a little bit more. That might have been us, but that was not them. Instead, do you know what they did in, in verse 24, Acts chapter 4? Then all the believers were united as they lifted their voices in prayer. So we're finally getting to that first, I believe, is the first recorded prayer of the newly established church after the day of Pentecost. Again, there were many other prayers, I'm sure. But here's what they prayed. Oh, sovereign Lord. So God, before we ask anything, we know who you are. We know who we're dealing with. You are the sovereign Lord. Nothing is out of control. You're sovereign. And then he goes on and he says, creator of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. So, so uh, God, we know that the earth and the heavens and, and, and the seas and, and we as humans didn't accidentally evolve. You're the creator. Well, they finally got to the gimme part. That's normally where we start. You know, help, bless, protect, guide, give. But after they praised and worshiped, then listened to, they made two requests in this prayer. Two requests. Verse 29. And now, O Lord, hear their threats. Give your servants. So here's the first request. Great boldness in their preaching. Time out. Did you notice what they prayed for? Boldness. you got to be kidding. Do you remember what landed them in jail in the first place? Boldness. And, and they're praying for more boldness? 
You've got to be kidding. Let me ask you this question. When was the last time you prayed for boldness to speak to your friends and family about Jesus? Now, let me clarify. This boldness that they were praying for was not, you know, seeing a brother or sister you know, in Christ in, in the grocery store that's going through a hard time, and you put your hand on their shoulder and pray for them in the store right there, and you say, I was bold for the Lord. Praying with another believer isn't really an act of boldness. I mean, there's a place for that, but, but you don't need to just think, oh, I was so bold for the Lord. I prayed with my brother. Peter and John are praying for boldness to share Jesus with people who were sinners. Well, after praying for boldness, they asked for one more thing, and this was even more radical. This will make some of you nervous. At least it did me. Here it is in verse 30. Send your healing power. Are you ready for this? May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Uh Uh-oh. You're saying, Pastor, stop right there. Don't go there, because I don't believe that stuff. Signs and wonders, just it just weirds me out. Just because there are a few churches that have taken this as a license for weirdness doesn't mean that we should dismiss this verse. What, what really were they praying for in this verse? Well, don't dismiss me as one of those weirdos, but, but it's a prayer. I've been praying for me. And I've been praying it for you. It was a prayer for, for God to help them live their lives with such anointing that, that people who didn't believe and people who were maybe skeptical of church and skeptical of Jesus and skeptical of Christians, that they would see a power in those of us that are followers of Jesus that could not be explained by anything except it must be a God thing. This was not a prayer to show off in the name of Jesus. Rather, this was a prayer for God's power to be shown through some sign or miracle that would not point to a preacher or a church or a healer. Rather, would point to Jesus Christ and, and, and cause sinners and, and skeptics to come to the realization that Jesus is real. So my question is this. What if you would begin to pray your own version of this prayer what what if you begin to pray god would you please do something miraculous for the sake of my family members and my friends that have been burned by religion and burned by hypocrites god would you stretch out your hand and do something unusual not for my benefit because i already believe but for the benefit of those who don't believe did you know that miracles in the bible weren't just for the sake of the people that the miracles were performed on? Did you know that? I, I mean, it was a good day for them if they were healed. But the point of the miracle was so that people would go, that is absolutely amazing. I've never seen anything like that. Tell me more about Jesus. It's not about saying, well, the pastor laid hands on somebody in the church and they were healed, so everybody was singing and dancing and shouting, it's a miracle. It's, it's not about advertising, a healer is coming to town. That's not what miracles are about. Miracles are merely a setup so that you can be a witness for Jesus. And please understand that miracles, follow along here, miracles of grace 
are so much more important than miracles of glory. Let me explain. A physical healing is a miracle of glory. And thank God for when that happens. But a spiritual healing is a miracle of grace. And I would much rather see a miracle of grace than a miracle of glory because a miracle of grace has eternal implications. You know, if they're physically healed, it's just this life. And that's good. It's a good day. Thank God. But a miracle of grace has eternal implications. And so I would much rather see someone begin to spiritually walk in Jesus Christ than someone who physically walks for the first time. And I'm, again, I'm not against miracles of healing. I, I pray for them frequently. But when there's a miracle of healing, it's not just so we can proclaim that Pastor Joe or so-and-so has the gift of healing and so so-and-so was healed. A miracle of healing is so that others can experience a miracle of grace and come to know Christ. Let me just ask you, can you imagine what would happen in our church if we would begin to add to, so keep praying everything that you've been praying, you know, God, thanks for the day, give me a safe trip, bless me, bless them, help, lead, guide, direct. What if we would add to those prayers, God, would you give me boldness to share Christ with my friends? I'm not a bold person by nature, so I need your help in this area. And God, and this will make some of you really nervous, God, would you stretch out your hand to do something extraordinary through me or through someone else that would get my friends who have written off the church to give you another look? Can, can you imagine what would happen if we began to pray like the first century church? Well, here's how the story wraps up. It's amazing. Verse 31. After this prayer, the building where they were meeting shook. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So revival hit. People were filled with the Spirit. I don't know about the building shaking. That would probably scare us a little bit here. But I've been praying, oh God, would you fill us with your Holy Spirit? Fill me with your Holy Spirit. May that happen here. So the building shook. They were filled with the Spirit. And remember what they were praying for? Boldness. And they preached God's message with boldness. And then Luke, who is writing this down, and frankly, I don't understand the connection here, but Maybe you do. You're probably smarter than I am. But in verse 32, it says, All the believers, after this prayer, after revival hit, all the believers were of one heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own. They shared everything they had. Now, that's not communism. Um, but after revival came, they were filled with the Spirit. God gave them boldness. There was evidently a, a revival of generosity. Not because somebody said, Well, if you give one, God will give ten. None of that. It's just as they became outsider-focused, as they became concerned about lost people in, the, in, in their community, as they began to talk about Jesus and His resurrection, they said, hey, you know what? I have some extra food. Let me share that with you. Or I've got an extra coat. Let me give that to you. 
where my kid has outgrown his bike and is still in perfect shape. It's not junk. I'm not going to give you junk. But let me give that almost new bike to your kid. Or let me pick up the tab for your meal this time. I can do it. I'm honored to do that. Or you might even want to say, you know, I have two cats. And you can have both of them. You know, there was a revival of, of generosity. So, as we wrap things up, here's the deal. The way you pray, the way I pray, it's an indication of whether we are insider-focused or outsider-focused. So here's what I want us to do. I want us all to pray the closing prayer together. And uh, I, I want us to stand, please, if you would just stand. And uh, we're going to just read the closing prayer together. We could have it on the screen there. On the count of three, we're going to do it a couple of times. And, and this is not just saying something. If, if you're not serious about this, if, if you are not wanting boldness, if you're not wanting God to do something extraordinary through you, don't pray it. Don't do it. But if you're really serious about wanting God to do something extraordinary in your life, on the count of three, can we all pray this together? One, two, three. Lord, enable me to speak your word with great boldness and stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of Jesus. Feel a little weird? It's biblical. Let's do it one more time. One, two, three. Lord, enable me to speak your word with great boldness and stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of Jesus. And all of the people said, Amen. You're dismissed. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.